What you see is what you get. Hello, my name is Pastor Chris Miller, and I am your host on the PC Speaking Podcast, where we are equipping Christians for life. Hello, and welcome once again to the PC Speaking Podcast. As always, it's great to have you tune in and tag along. I'm thankful for each and every one of you received some comments during the week. Certainly appreciate those. Sometimes I get notifications for comments, but my notifications don't tell me which platform that those comments are on. And it's on so many different platforms, it can be difficult to find those. So if I don't reply to your comment, I have read it. I am grateful for it. Um, and yeah, I just want you to know that, that I do appreciate it, even if I am unable to reply. Thank you for commenting. This week, we are back in our series on the book of Revelation. And before we get into that, I wanted to share something with you just briefly, um, a reading, a prayer uh, by George Matheson. He was a uh, minister in the Church of Scotland, I believe back in the 1700s. He went blind when he was about 20 years old, but went on to study philosophy, become a minister, and was a prolific writer and a poet. When he was around 19 or 20 years old, he was engaged to be married. But when his fiance found out that he was going blind, she decided that it would be too difficult to spend her life with a blind husband. So she left him. But this prayer, it's prayer for illumination, it's called, uh, was written by George Matheson. And it says, divine spirit, illumine to me the words of the Lord. Show me the wealth of glory that lies beneath the old familiar stories. Teach me the depths of meaning hidden in the songs of Zion. Raise me to the heights of aspiration that is reached by the wings of the prophet. Lift me to the summit of faith that is trod by the feet of the apostle. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Amen. So with that in mind, let's read. We're going to start with Revelation chapter verses 12 through 17. We're talking about the church at Pergamum, in Pergamum this week. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Starting in verse 12, the Bible says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, he who has the sharp two-edged sword says these things. I know your works and where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold firmly to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have there those who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So you also have those who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except he who receives it. <clears throat> well, as we go through this study on the seven churches of Asia in the first few chapters of the book of Revelation, we touch on some of the ambiguous and enigmatic things, but we concentrate on things that we can learn and that we can apply in our own lives. And Jesus has given us a simple formula to help us with that in the seven churches of Asia, in his encouragement and warnings to the seven churches as we look forward to the day when he returns. And as we look at the 
wor- warnings he gives the churches, the encouragement, uh, the application is not always easy, but the formula itself is pretty easily understood. It's basically, you don't know, do this, don't do that. If we travel about 90 kilometers, 50 miles, 90 kilometers, something like that, in a northeasterly direction from Smyrna, we come to a great political and religious center, uh, the city of Pergamum. And Pergamum is a city that has a library of around 200,000 volumes, second only to Alexandria. And this was before printing press, anything like that. So it's pretty amazing to think that it had so many uh, volumes in its library there. Uh, Parchment or paper uh, derived its name from Pergamum. Pergamum also has several temples to uh, different pagan deities, idol worship and such. There's a temple to Zeus, Athena, Dionysius, a temple to Asclepius, the god of healing, and also called the god of Pergamum. And there was a medical university in Pergamum as well. So it's a pretty metropolitan city. And it was the first city in Asia in AD 29 with a temple for the worship of Caesar Augustus, Octavius Caesar. So Pergamum is a center of idol and emperor worship. And if you visit your local shopping mall, we have a couple here on the Gold Coast that are quite large. When you walk through the mall, there are shops on both sides of the walkway. And you look around, you can get pretty much anything you want, pick, choose what you like, whatever you like. And that was kind of the similar situation with temples in Pergamum. Pick and choose whatever suited you best. You could worship an idol depending on what you thought you wanted or what you needed. Um, that's often how idol worship worked is someone would pick an idol that related to their life situation and worship that idol. Just as oh, a potential example, if you happen to be a farmer, you might worship an idol who uh, controlled the weather to you know, have good weather to help grow your crops. And remember, we spoke about the Nicolaitans as well already in this series um, at Ephesus. And we said they would come up again, and here they are, and they're going to come up again later. And remember, we speculated at the time that the Nicolaitans probably practiced licentiousness. Um, They kind of, well, what would you say? They took advantage of God's grace. They practice licentiousness, and it seems that they're doing well in Pergamum. They're prospering there. And knowing all of that, we can understand why Pergamum is a city well-known for its pagan practices and idol worship. And Jesus addresses each of these seven churches in the first few chapters of Revelation in very similar but different ways. Each time he introduces himself to a church, he uses a different title for himself. In Ephesus, he's the one who held the seven stars in his hand and walked among the seven golden lampstands. And then you move to Smyrna. He is the one who's the first and the last who died and came to life again. And now when he addresses the church at Pergamum, he introduces himself as he who has the sharp two-edged sword. In chapter 1, Verse 16 of the book of Revelation, uh, John describes the Lord like this. He says, in his right hand, he held seven stars and come out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. It also reminds me of Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, which says, for the word of God is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. 
of joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. The double-edged sword is a metaphor for the word of God, what God says. It's sharp, it divides joints and marrow, even the soul and spirit. It's sharp enough to cut through the thoughts and intentions and judge those as good or bad, right or wrong. This is the power of what God says. When we go back to the beginning, we see God speak creation into existence in the book of Genesis. As God speaks, what he says becomes reality. He said, let there be light. And there was light. Um, We say often that God's word is true or that it's truth. And yes, it is true. However, God's word is more than just true. It determines what is true. It's the standard by which truth is judged. It's the standard by which truth is determined. God's word is true. It creates what's true. It is the measurement by which truth is determined, even to the depths of the thoughts and intentions of our heart and mind. Now, the term double-edged sword is often used metaphorically. We use it you know, outside of the Bible as well. I looked up the definition of double-edged sword in the dictionary. It said it refers to something that has both good and bad consequences. Good example of that uh, would would be something like owning a car. Uh, it's a double-edged sword. It gets me to work where I can earn money, but it also costs me a lot of money to put fuel in it and keep it maintained. So it's a double-edged sword. And the dictionary also said, added this, I thought was interesting, says that when wielding a double-edged sword, you have to be careful not to cut yourself when trying to swing it at an opponent. An opponent, And those are important thoughts in considering the Word of God and how we handle it. The Word of God is a double-edged sword addressing the churches of Asia in both positive and negative ways. It's both encouragement and a warning. In some cases, the Word of God is painful. It has the power to convict some to repentance and trust, uh, positive side of the sword. In other cases, uh, people may reject that conviction and face judgment and condemnation. Uh, negative side of the sword. The Word of God judges both. <clears throat> no, so those are important thoughts in considering the Word of God and how we handle it. And the Word of God is a double-edged sword addressing the Church of Asia in both positive and negative ways. It's both encouragement and a warning. And as Jesus addresses Pergamum, he says, the one who creates what is real and true with his words is now speaking to you. Now, if you and I were at Pergamum, I think there are a couple of things to notice about that. One is we should sit up and take notice of this because every single word the Lord speaks is powerful and important. And as we listen to what he says, we should listen with a degree of intensity that comes with knowing that what he says will come to pass. So I would also really hope he has something good to say. And the first thing he says is something good. In verse 13, he says, I know your works, where you live, and where Satan's throne is, yet you hold firmly to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. He says, I know your works, as he does with each church, um, out of these seven churches in Revelation. He has an intimate personal knowledge of the people and practices of every church. He knows what they do, what they think, how they feel, and he knows the same thing about 
us. And he also adds that he knows where they live. You remind you know, you remember they live in a a shopping mall of pagan temples, and you can worship whatever you like, whenever you like, even Jesus, if you like, in Pergamum. And he also says they live where Satan's throne is. Some speculate that's because of all the idol worship and pagan practice that goes on in Pergamum. Some say it's because of the temple dedicated the worship of Caesar. Uh, in this particular context, I think the worship of Caesar fits well. Uh, the Roman Empire allowed local cultures to keep their religion when they conquered them, assimilated them into the empire. Um, they found that it was easier to allow local cultures to keep their religion. And it's wise because, you know, it's one less battle to fight. But recognition of the Roman emperor as a deity was also required. So you could keep your religion, but you also had to recognize the Roman emperor as deity, which for a lot of religions wouldn't be that big of a deal um, because, you know, the emperor would be just another deity among many. So it wouldn't really bother him, but that would obviously be a problem for Christians because we only recognize one Lord. And in the midst of all the idol worship and the requirements to recognize Caesar's deity, the Church of Pergamum is commended for holding fast to the name of Jesus. And that means they rejected idol worship. Apparently at one point, even to the point of martyrdom for a man named Antipas. Interestingly, Jesus mentions his name, but we don't really know anything about him. There's some traditions and things that say there were certain things that went on with him, and you could, you know, look those up if you're interested. But the Bible doesn't really say anything specific about him. So far, we see the church of Pergamum held fast in the name of Jesus and did not worship idols, even amongst a shopping mall of pagan temples. Jesus knows that, and he commends the church for that. That's very positive. That's a good thing. They hold fast in the name of Jesus. But then we come to the negative. And in verse 14, Jesus says, but I have a few things against you. You have there those who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So you also have those who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. So the church at Pergamum is a church that recognizes Jesus as Lord and worships him alone, but they have compromised with a culture of idol worship in that they have adopted practices from the culture that doesn't hold up against the double-edged sword of God's word. So Ephesus is the loveless church. We talked about them in the first week of this series. Then we moved to Smyrna, the persecuted church. And now we've come to Pergamum, the compromising church. And this might be relatable for some. Sometimes I hear, you know, different people compare churches today to the church at Pergamum. They worship Jesus, hold to his name alone, which is what the Lord commends them for. But he rebukes them for compromising the way they live as followers of Jesus. Compromising with culture um, has been a struggle for churches throughout history in different ways. And we're going to talk more about, well, trying to figure out exactly what that means. That's a definitely a, a rabbit hole. But up front, we can see that it is possible to recognize Jesus as Lord in a positive way and simultaneously live 
in a negative compromise. That's, that's an important point to get a hold of. It's possible to recognize Jesus as Lord in a positive way and simultaneously live in negative compromise. And getting that right can be very difficult. Well, let's talk about what was happening at Pergamum and then make a contemporary application. Jesus mentions Balaam, Balak, also the Nicolaitans. In mentioning Balaam and Balak, he's given an Old Testament reference to the Israelites being led morally astray. And then we come to the Nicolaitans again. And remember, we talked about them previously. And the Lord specifically mentions a couple of things here. Um, he meets, mentions eating meat or things, eating things that have been sacrificed to idols and committing sexual adultery. And Paul also deals with eating things sacrificed to idols in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And when you read the two different passages, it's, you could almost get the impression that Paul says it's okay and Jesus doesn't. That's not the case, though, as, as we'll see here in a minute. When Paul addresses it, what was going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 was some Christians were buying meat in the marketplace that had been sacrificed to idols. It had been part of a pagan religious ceremony. It had been involved in idol worship in some way. It would kind of be like going to the grocery store to buy some steak. And there's a normal section over here. And then there's uh, a section over there that has some meat that's been, you know, part of a pagan religious ceremony. It's been sacrificed to an idol, but it's five bucks less a kilo. Now, meat is a staple part of my diet. I'm buying the stuff that's $5 less, and I have no association with the pagan religious ceremony. It holds zero meaning to me, and I, it just doesn't bother me. And I don't know, it, this is a, a far more mild example, but it might be somewhat like buying beef that is halal or kosher, and it's been butchered in a different way. I I don't care. I mean, that's just me. That makes no difference to me. But the fact is, is that it does to some people. And that's not nothing. That does matter. Many Christians who had come out of idol worship struggled with other Christians eating meat. That was the problem in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And there was meat floating around in the marketplace that had been part of a pagan religious practice or a ceremony. And that bothered Christians who had come out of that. And Paul addressed it in a way that said, you know, to some eating meat that has been sacrificed to an idol is just eating meat. It's not a big deal. They aren't worshiping the idol. They don't really care. That doesn't hold any meaning for them. But to someone who had a connection with that and struggled with it to get past it, maybe it was part of their past, Paul said, don't eat that meat around those people. If it bothers them, don't do it. There's no need to offend them. There's no need to make their life difficult. In fact, as a brother or sister in Christ, you should intentionally avoid that. And there's a good lesson for us all to be conscientious of things like that. You know, in time, that person may go to a place where it doesn't bother them. But until that's the case, don't do it. There's no need for things like that. But what usually happens in that case is that one, uh, the one who it doesn't bother intentionally does whatever's offensive around the person who thinks it's wrong in an attempt to correct them. and. That just doesn't work. I've seen that happen with uh, some, you know, maybe less mature believers, and you know, alcohol. Regardless, I know people have different opinions on that, but one person will be uh, convicted that they shouldn't drink. Another person will think it's fine, and they'll 
you know, post picture their, their beer on social media or something just to stress out people who see things differently. That's not right. And that's, that's, you know, we shouldn't do that. And that's what we're being taught in first Corinthians chapter eight. It doesn't work. Um, anyway, a little bit of a sidetrack there. What Jesus says in revelation two and what Paul says in first Corinthians eight are actually very similar. And what Jesus says in our passage today, you know, when he says, he talks about this eating things that have been sacrificed to idols, it's not just about eating something that's been sacrificed to an idol. It's about taking part in the immoral practices of idol worship. Even though they're not worshiping the idol, they are claiming Jesus is Lord. So there were festivals and feasts and things that, practices that were gluttonous and licentious, that were sexually immoral. And that was more than just picking up a stake in the market that had at some point in its journey been butchered by pagans. Totally different things they're talking about here. And we need to be aware of both sides of that because we can hold fast in the name of Jesus and still participate in immoral practices and licentiousness. In our passage, Jesus specifically mentions sexual immorality, which is a form of immorality that many have struggled with throughout history and often do today. God has given us sexual desire. We've talked about this before. God has given us sexual desire. It's a good God-given desire. It's from God and it's a good desire, but it becomes sinful when we exercise it outside of the context in which God intends that we exercise it. So sexual desire, if it's, if it's exercised anywhere outside of a biblical marriage covenant between a husband, a wife, and God, it becomes sinful. All kinds of crazy things went on in pagan idol worship. In some pagan worship, there were temple prostitutes. And there's, again, there's so much to, to, uh, that you could read about this. I don't know if it's helpful or not. You, know, you don't really need to know that much about it. But in some pagan worship, there were temple prostitutes and prostitution uh, was considered sacred practice in some temples, which is, you know, I don't know, whatever. But And beyond that, the people have dreamt up just about anything you could imagine and, and called it a religious practice. The problem in Pergamum was that the church Jesus is addressing had taken on and participated in some of these practices themselves while claiming Jesus was Lord. They weren't worshiping the idols, but they were participating in the immoral practices. It's not just that they had done that and then said, oops, we shouldn't do that, but they believed that God's grace gave them license to do those things. They held to the name of Jesus. They didn't worship idols. They said, you know, we worship only Jesus. We don't worship these idols. We don't worship Caesar. But they participated in some of the same immoral practices of the pagans, specifically sexual immorality, while teaching and believing it was perfectly okay to practice sexual immorality. Some taught and believed that the freedom of the gospel placed them outside the boundaries of moral behavior. And this week, I, as I was studying this, I learned a, a new word that labels that practice. It's called a, it's antinomian, which means holding or relating to the view that Christians are released by grace from the obligation of observing the moral law. So the church of Pergamum, at least many people in the church, had an antinomian view of the gospel and God's grace. 
someone might say, well, you know, if Jesus did pay for all sin and I'm secure in Christ, then why does it matter if I sin? Why can't I practice sexual immorality? Well, you could ask your wife about that if you're a married man or your husband and see how they feel about it. And there's always the fact that God says, don't do that, which in and of itself, that's enough on its own. Jesus also said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So there's that as well. I love Jesus, so I'll do my best to follow him and live how he wants me to live. There's also the fact that God is not a tyrant. Sometimes people you know, think religion is about control and all this stuff, but they're ignorant. They just don't understand it. They haven't taken the time to look into it um, thoroughly and think critically. And God's commands are not simply to control what you do. An antinomian view of God's grace would deny that there would be any consequences for sin. God's grace saves us, and the ultimate payment for sin has been made by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, but that doesn't insulate us from the everyday consequences of sin. The reason we have moral commands to follow is because they're good for us. God loves us. He's given us the roadmap of Scripture to live by for our benefit. If we don't, we're going to make a mess of things. As an example, if we're involved in sexual immorality, it's going to erode the foundation of marriage. It's going to erode the foundation of family. And in turn, it's going to erode the foundation of culture. And most Christians want to do what's right and good because we love Jesus. And we'll guard against compromise because we love Jesus. We you know, try to protect ourselves from immorality. We'll set boundaries and all that stuff is good. It's positive and, and meaningful to do that. But, but we need to balance it with this as a misunderstanding of grace can lead to an antinomian belief an unhealthy fear or misunderstanding of compromise can lead to legalism. Compromise is doing something that we want to do or that makes us feel comfortable that is either contrary to scripture or maybe in addition to scripture. And legalism, it's just another form of compromise or traditionalism, whatever you want to call it. They kind of tend to go hand in hand. Um, an antinomian view, progressivism, liberalism, they're all very similar. And like, you know, a legalism and traditionalist view of scripture is very similar, but they're all just another form of compromise. And when you look at conflict among believers in scripture and the things that Paul writes about throughout the New Testament and in the seven churches addressed in Revelation, and in my own experience in ministry and probably your church experience as well, there's there's is sometimes friction between deciding what's too much, what's not enough. You know, where are the lines at? Where do we cross over into legalism? Where do we cross into liberalism, progressivism, traditionalism? There's all these isms that we want to avoid as believers. We want to avoid adding things to scripture or taking things away. And it's difficult to know where those lines are. What's taking, you know, what's taking things too far? What's not taking things far enough? Where do we cross the border into legalism and antinomian beliefs? When is God's grace taken somewhere it shouldn't go. Now, the only thing that determines that for certain is Scripture. And that's all we have is Scripture, which is enough. But there are things that Christians will always and forever interpret differently. They're not going to be sorted out until we're in heaven with Jesus. 
And people will hold very strong convictions about those things. I mentioned alcohol, for instance. People have a you know varied beliefs on that, and they're very strong. And this is a puzzling topic for contemporary churches. <clears throat> and people, you know, there's all kinds of things that could be part of this. Um, you know, how people conduct themselves as a couple before they're married. All this stuff matters. And I've been through many of these, what is right, what isn't struggles with uh, my church. And I've, I've changed my mind about some different things. Some things I've, I've become more relaxed with. Some things I've actually become more you know, tight with, more conservative, I guess you could say. But a sizable part of my ministry has been doing my best to seek and follow what is actually biblical doctrine and moral practice while avoiding compromise, while at the same time not making legalistic additions to Scripture and then leading the church I pastor to do the same. And that's a bit of a tightrope walk, sometimes in an attempt to avoid compromise Christians make additions to Scripture as a buffer against compromise, which is well-meaning. I mean, there's no denying that. We want to make sure we are living in obedience to the Lord, but making legalistic additions to Scripture is what the Pharisees did. And they added to what God had commanded, and they placed unnecessary burdens on people. So we definitely want to avoid moral compromise and making light of God's grace, but there's also the other side of that where neither should we make additions to biblical morality in an attempt to protect against compromise. So, you know, whether it's antinomian or legalism or legalistic views, they're both really compromise. And the biblical road is a narrow road to walk. We shouldn't be legalistic, neither should we be licentious. If you take a very, very inflammatory topic, for instance, like homosexuality, that's such a hot button issue how Christians feel about it, how secular culture feels about it. And there's, you know, there's often crossover between the two. And there's not, there's not a consistent belief in either side of that. People tend to tip one way or the other. It's either all about love and acceptance or it's all about judgment. And people do that because it's easy to pick one and run with it. It's also easy to find people who will support your view. But it's difficult to balance both. And the fact is, it really is about both. It's about love and acceptance and judgment. Uh, that The gospel is for all people. A specific sexual orientation is a requirement to know Jesus is your Savior. But there are still the moral commands of Scripture that we need to understand and do our best to live by. And, you know, as a thought, if you have the opportunity to witness to someone who is wrapped up in some way in a social hot-button issue like I don't know, it could be anything, transgenderism, it could be um, homosexuality, whatever it is. You know, you don't have to bring that up to discuss sin and salvation. You just don't. There are plenty of other sins you can talk about. <sighs> Something less controversial, at least, well, less less controversial than it used to be. I've been to churches. Um, I've, had, well, I've actually had the opportunity to travel and speak in many different churches, but I've been to churches where you are expected to dress a certain way. And I recently heard the story of someone bringing a visitor to a church where all the women wore hats. You know, some there's a few churches out there who, you know, think head coverage are very important for women. And I don't really have, I don't, well, I don't. I don't have permission to share names or who it was, but a person was told they were not allowed to attend because they didn't have a hat. And, 
Some would say that's completely ridiculous. But like I say, people have very kind of strong convictions about such things. Obviously strong enough, they turn someone away. And I've been to churches where all men wore a suit every Sunday. And you know, a lot of people would understand that's not a biblical requirement, but it is a pretty strong conviction for some people. I preached in several churches like that. I showed up, I remember one time to speak at an evening service, and I left my tie in the car, and I had my suit on, just no tie. And I got called out on it. Where's your tie? And when invited to speak in a church, you know, I knew it was like that. I wouldn't show up in, you know, board shorts and a t-shirt just to show them they were wrong. That's not how it works. What we're trying to do here at our church, at Hinterland, is, is find the balance the narrow road Jesus wants us to follow. And I don't know that we're ever going to do that perfectly, but we sure try. And to be a church where someone who may be wrestling with some social hot busting issues, who feels uncomfortable, you know, a certain sin, whatever it is, can come and visit, hear the gospel and think, okay, well, these people don't hate me. And can tell by the way we treat them that we genuinely care about them. And in turn, what that does is it helps validate the message of the gospel. But at the same time, someone who has a conviction that says, I don't feel right unless I'm wearing a, a suit on Sunday. And there, there are some folks like that where they can come, be part of the church, and feel comfortable and welcome too, and know that I'm going to support them in their conviction. You know, if that's, that's what you want to do and you feel like you should do that, then you should do that. Do it. It's a good thing. It's not bad to have convictions, but it's also important to help people recognize that, you know, in a case like that, it's your conviction. It's not everyone's. And I believe that mindset is what will help us hold the name of Jesus without compromise. And unfortunately, the Church of Pergamum was compromising, but I think one of the things that helps us hold to the name of Jesus without compromise is focusing the majority of our energy on applying Scripture in our own life and being involved in actively serving Jesus. We need to find a way to serve, and we need to be applying Scripture in our own life. And that's going to solve a lot of problems. If you're busy applying Scripture in your own life and serving Jesus, you're probably not going to have the time to worry much about what everyone else is doing. Sometimes I hear people talk about things that other churches and people are doing, and I'm like, man, where do you find the time to even concern yourself with that? But, you know, and that doesn't mean there aren't times when we need correction and we need rebuke. A big part of this series on the seven churches of Revelation is about rebuke and correction, you know, warnings, things we shouldn't do. So it's not to say, you know, that doesn't mean there aren't times for that. But we're trying to be a church at Hinterland that, that loves people, cares for them, while recognizing that we all have a long road of growth ahead of us. And change takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. And at the same time, we aren't going to normalize unchristian behavior in the church. You know, the world's going to do what it's going to do. I'm not too concerned about that. Uh, most of the time, it's not any of my business. The gospel's for the world. The commands are for the church. And we're not going to normalize unchristian behavior in the church. If we compromise in either direction, antinomianism or legalism, we're not doing the gospel message justice because it's not about either one of those. That's not easy. There's a lot of effort and discipline involved in that. And it would be far easier, far, far easier to drift towards one extreme or the other, which is often what people do. But we're not going to do that. 
and the church at Pergamum had drifted towards the licentious view of God's grace. And to that, Jesus says in verse 16, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except he who receives it. Jesus tells those who are living a morally compromised life to repent, repent, turn back, agree with God. As a believer, whatever sin you're struggling with, repent. Turn back to the Lord. Get it out of your life. When you are practicing sin, you are at war with the word of God. And for someone who doesn't know Christ as Savior, you're an enemy of God, and you're going to be judged against his perfect word, and you're going to be found lacking. Anyone who's judged against God's word is going to be found lacking, except Jesus. And Jesus lived a perfect life. He went to the cross. He was made the payment for our sin on the cross. And that's that's the gospel message. If you know Jesus is Savior, he's judged in your place and he is perfect. Well, I hope you found today helpful. Please like, follow, share. If you have a friend who might find this helpful, I'd certainly you know appreciate it if you would share it with them too. But I will look forward to talking to you again soon. Have a great week. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. Let me know what you think in the comments. Please consider subscribing and sharing this with someone who might find it helpful.